0: Hello, and welcome to Evalueland, the podcast about the land of evaluation between you and me, your host, Dana Linnell Wanzer. This is the show where we interview people about any and all things evaluation related. Welcome to another episode of Evalueland. This week, I'm chatting with Martha Brown, founder of RJ Consulting and trauma-informed and restorative justice specialist with Himai Consulting. We're going to be talking about how we can help human service organizations and their evaluators become trauma informed. I'm really excited to talk about this topic with Martha because trauma informed lens, bringing that lens to our work, is so important. Being trauma informed in our organizations, our evaluations, the way we teach our students, in all of our interactions. And when I think of trauma informed evaluation, I do think of Martha and all the resources and courses and things that she's done on the topic. So I'm really glad to be chatting with her about this topic. I'd like to point out that we're gonna be focusing on a segment of this conversation, namely on trauma-informed organizations and why this work is important. So if you wanna learn more about trauma-informed evaluation in particular, I recommend checking out other podcast episodes, courses, and writing that Martha has done on the topic. So with all of that, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Martha. Thanks
1: Dana, it's great to be here. Um, It's kind of funny, I don't know if you remember when we met in Minneapolis, we were in this incredibly long coffee line at the Minneapolis Convention Center at AEA, and you are so, um, your looks are so branded. I would say that I looked, I walked by you and said, "Hey, are you Dana Wanser?" And you said, "Hey, yes, I am." And I said, "Hey, I'm Martha Brown," and then we laughed and went on our merry way. <laughs> Oh, that's awesome. I don't remember that at all.
0: I was going to say, I thought, I thought we had met each other first through, um, the TIG scan, which was slightly prior, but I guess that's not in person, obviously, since most of our work is done online, isn't it? But yep. Yep. Awesome. That's so cool. Well, thank you for inviting it. Uh, you're coming onto this podcast and and uh, offering to come talk about this topic with us today. Before we go into that, if you could maybe introduce yourself to our listeners, tell us a little bit about you and your background.
1: All right. Um, my name is Martha Brown and I live in Faribault, Minnesota now, out in the rural parts and absolutely love it here. Like a lot of independent evaluators, I fell into it by accident. My dissertation chair was an arts education evaluator and was leaving town. And as she was leaving, kind of passed her clients off to me. Um, and because I'm also a professional musician, it was just a good fit and I loved it and I've been there ever since. And unfortunately, um, that part of my business has gotten really, really, really small because COVID has, um, I don't want to say attacked, but I can't think of a better word right now. The arts and entertainment profession, probably worse than any. And it's going to take us longer to bounce back than probably any other discipline. Um, And I was really excited when kind of during right right after the pandemic hit and um, all of the arts organizations that I was affiliated with just closed their doors. Tamara Hamai reached out to me um, with some subcontract work. That I gladly took and a few months later offered me a position. She was very interested in building out um, trauma-informed evaluation work and invited me to be on her team. And we've been doing some super, super exciting stuff with more to come ever since.
0: Awesome. Well, maybe we'll get into that a little bit. I mean, I'm very eager to hear more about the work that you're doing with my consulting um, on this topic. Before we talk about that, though, um, I do sometimes find it helpful to, 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 ground us in sort of what we mean by certain terms. And I think there's a lot to understanding what trauma is and, and how it manifests, and, um, kind of physically, emotionally, and so on. Um, but then also kind of what we mean when we say trauma informed. So if you could, t- you know, explain those concepts to us so that we all have the same groundwork going in.
1: Sure. And just for folks listening, um, I really rely on SAMHSA's work for this, S-A-M-S-H-A, which you can Google. Um, They have a ton of resources. They're really the leaders on this kind of work, I feel, although there's a lot of people in the field. Um, So there's, I I told Dana defining trauma and how it manifests is an entire webinar on its own. (laughs) So definitely um, refer you to those resources. But basically trauma is... Um, some kind of negative event that causes um, fear or feelings of threat or unsafeness that have long lasting lifetime effects. And they affect people's uh, spiritual, mental, physical, and emotional well-being. And in some cases, these effects can have lasting health implications, which is what the ACEs study showed done by CDC in 1997. And those ACEs are adverse childhood experiences that we now know um, are really like the leading causes of addiction, mental health problems, sexual promiscuity, um, high school dropout, aggressive behaviors. There's so much that's linked to trauma. And trauma lives in the brain and the body. It actually changes us physiologically. And so it requires physical and physiological healing. So it's just not something that people can get over. We move on from it, but trauma changes how our brains and bodies react and process information. Um, It changes how we react and process signals and words and events and people. So to heal from it, we really need to do focused work and actually rewire our brains and this is a word I've heard recently metabolize the trauma in our bodies. I like that way of thinking of
0: it metabolizing, because it's not something we can get rid of, right? It's something that we have to figure out how to kind of work through our systems and in a me- metabolic way. I like that, that metaphor. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I, I, I can share a story with you. Would you like a story about that? Oh, I would love a story. Yeah. <laughs> um, When I first started learning about trauma, probably five years ago, it was through teaching a course on it. And that forced me to look at my own life and my own childhood experience, which I knew was dysfunctional, but i never related the term trauma to it until I I learned about trauma. And it started helping me make sense out of behaviors that I've had in my life that were not necessarily healthy. decisions, i.e. bad decisions I've made in my life that I I could just now start to connect the dots that these were all trauma related. And, um, I take a boxing class up in St. Paul with this amazing coach who pushes us so hard and he's all about building up really our resilience and stamina so we could push through adversity, which is a way to also heal trauma. But one day, um, We were, we were hitting the bags and it was at the end of class and I was so, so, so tired. And he just said, I want you to think of everybody in your life who told you, you weren't good enough and just let it out, just empty it. And like immediately, immediately I was sobbing and thank God we were wearing masks at the time because my mask was just like full of snot and tears. And I was slugging away at this bag and I literally could feel those messages that had been not only sent to me, but that manifested in me as a result of trauma, I could feel that releasing from the cells in my body with every punch, with every tear, with every sob. And so I I think that word metabolized trauma is really real, tangible. It, It was for me in that moment. And it's not always that way, but for that moment, I was like, when that class was done and I had gotten that stuff out of my body, I was lighter. I knew something had shifted in just those few minutes.
0: Well, thank you for sharing that story. I, it sounds also like being able to recognize and name that trauma for what it is was also is also a really important aspect to this, right? That um, I think broadly being under, able to understand what a trauma is, but also to recognize it within ourselves. So if this was a trauma, um, it sounds like that was part of your journey of being able to recognize that because I think one of the misconceptions around trauma being trauma informed is that, um, a trauma trauma comes from the experience, but it's partly at least your perception of that experience, right? You and I could experience the same exact thing, but for one of us, it's a trauma and the other person it's not. And it's partly how we come to experience and understand and, and absorb that experience that leads it to be a trauma or not. And, for some, I think the trauma could feel normal. Like I'm not supposed to feel traumatized about this, but, but it could be right. Even, even something that, you you know, like, Oh, that's nothing. Just, just walk it off. It's like, well, that could have been deeply traumatic for somebody, especially if
1: it's a long-term type thing. Right. Right. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. So that lead, that leads into your answering your other question. What, what does it mean to be trauma informed? And, um, Going off of what SAMHSA says, and I, and I want to frame this first, I really think being trauma informed is a lens. It, when you put on those glasses, first of all, you can never take them off. It changes the way you see things. Um, and SAMHSA's got these four R's. And the first one is that when you're trauma informed, you realize the widespread impact of trauma and understand paths for recovery. And that's when you learn about trauma and you start looking around the world and looking at the way people act and looking at politicians and looking at all the craziness going on right now, it is, you're like, oh, this is trauma, right? You, you start to recognize how it's playing out and, and you recognize the signs and symptoms in, in yourself and in others. Then third R is you respond by integrating that knowledge about trauma policies, procedures, and practices. And then the fourth one um, is that you actively seek to resist re-traumatization. But I'm gonna add a few other things to it. It also involves understanding resiliency, understanding the importance of self-care and practicing it, um, recognizing the importance of humanizing our work and humanizing workplaces and seeing people always as humans, not as their titles, not as their positions, as human beings, like really remembering, everybody has a story, everybody's a human being. And that sounds really superficial. And maybe it is, but when you add it in with the other four Rs, then it really kind of gives you this, um, oh, I wear progressive lenses, so I can use that metaphor too, this kind of progressive lens metaphor on how to see and understand what's going on with yourself and other people, and then what actions to take to um, move through that into a healing place.
0: This reminds me a lot about, um, you know, it hasn't been five years for me, but I started learning about trauma-informed education and bringing a trauma-informed lens. And I do appreciate that metaphor of it being a lens. And I think I agree with you a lot that, like, once you learn about this stuff and agree with it, I think it's important to, to, uh, you know, I think you could learn about it and still ignore it. But once you realize the importance of of understanding trauma and responding to trauma, um, you can't go back. And I've noticed that in, in the way I teach now that um, I, I kind of assume that everybody coming into the classroom has a trauma of some cor- of, 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 some sort, right. Just like I assume that they're going to have some it's a sort good of assumption. I, I think so. Well, I mean, I'd rather assume that they, they come in with all these, like, for example, disabilities and traumas and things that I'm going to try to be proactive about as opposed to reactive um, and try to, um, again, bring that trauma-informed approach, right? And it it reminds me of a quote, and I know we're gonna get into this, but it reminds me of a quote, uh, I think it was by Julia Kaufman about, like, we can do um, equitable evaluation even when the organization we're working for doesn't have an equity... Focus to what the work they're doing, right? And I think it's the same thing here that regardless right. of what the purpose of the evaluation is, we probably
1: should be trauma-informed in the approach that we're taking. Right. I mean, that's that's that first hour of realizing the wide, widespread impact. And the ACEs study showed us that 63% of, of all of us have at least one adverse childhood experience, at least one. Um, but then when you you take in collective impact every single person on the planet right now has it because of COVID. This has been two years of nonstop uncertainty and trauma and toxic stress. Um, And in some cases traumatic, whether you have the disease or lose somebody from the disease or um, affected by, you know, the the violence and the anti-narratives out there about the disease, you know, it's wearing away at us, climate trauma, again, affecting the whole planet. Um, racial trauma, all of these things, natural disasters in certain areas will traumatize entire communities. So for me, um, it is the thing we have in common. Show me one person who has never experienced any trauma. I, I don't know who that would be. Um, we've all experienced it and some more than others and some differently than others. But to me, it's our common ground. We're human beings and we have some kind of trauma. And and those two things um. I think are the, are the big connectors. And so if we can work to prevent trauma, particularly in kids and work on re trauma or work on not re traumatizing each other as adults, um, then we can really start to, to have an impact, but we've got to, we've got to realize it and recognize it first before we can, you know, work on not re traumatizing.
0: So with all of that in mind, what does that mean for our work? I know that that's a really broad question. We've got some other questions we could get into, but I feel like just like, what do you, what do you think this means for us as evaluators, as people working with organizations that are trying to make a difference in the world?
1: I I think it fits in with a lot of the work um, and, and a lot of the other, Dana, how do you, how do you say it? You know, in the evaluation field right now, we're being asked to transform and asked to see things differently and be differently, whether we're addressing white supremacy, racial inequity, gender inequity, um, being trauma-informed fits in like a hand in a glove with all of those other initiatives, because first of all, they all seek to humanize each other. Um, they all seek to stop doing practices and using approaches that dehumanize, which some people would call colonizing, um, and it gets us out of that position of expert or power over. It just, it helps us. And it's congruent with all of these other um, conversations we're having about how to make evaluation more equitable.
0: Yeah. I remember my biggest foray into trauma-informed teaching. I, I know I bring that back. That's just where I'm at in my my life right now. But um, was we were trying to do a, a session on um, like inclusive pedagogy. And being inclusive, part of that is being trauma-informed, right? Just like part mm-hmm. of it is having a universal design for learning approach. Um, I agree. These these all really fit in really nicely together. So would you perhaps, would you call being trauma-informed like a culturally responsive approach to evaluation or is it tangential or how, how much you think of that?
1: I think there's so many overlaps and I will tell you, um, A couple of weeks ago, I I put out a call for Gray Literature to ask if anybody's got any reports or anything on trauma-informed evaluation. And Johnny Williams showed up into my life, who she's an indigenous PhD um, clinician whose dissertation was on adverse childhood experiences. And she's an actual practitioner, a, a psychologist, and she and I have teamed up with and through Humai consulting we're working on writing an article and so it's coming and we're going to one of the main goals of the article is to show the overlay of trauma-informed approaches with um all the different methods and all of the different things because there's there's pieces of okay let's take dei right our dei work our culturally responsive work One of the principles of trauma-informed care is attention to cultural, historical, and gender issues. So there's automatic overlay right there. The problem is the trauma-informed people and the DEI people aren't necessarily talking to each other about that overlay. So that's a gap that we can start bridging right away because you cannot talk about and acknowledge gender, cultural, and historical issues without talking about trauma. And if you do, you're missing out on why there are those issues. I mean, those issues are grounded in trauma, sexual trauma, racial trauma, class trauma, right? Yeah. It's, it's in those things. And so the inequities that these movements are trying to heal have to be trauma-informed because the inequities themselves are the result of trauma. And you can call it colonization, but colonization is violent. So I'm just calling it trauma. They're the result of trauma and um, And that trauma needs to be healed as part of the process of trying to make systems and organizations more equitable, like to have
0: a racial justice approach to, to be aspiring to justice, then we need to understand, like, like, again, understand that trauma and respond to that trauma.
1: Right. And, and what I'd like to see is that named because it can be named and it fits in right along with this work. Yeah. Yeah but not just named in a superficial way, like really explained and examined and understood why, oh, like why as a gay person, I'm going to react and go off or shut down when something is, is mentioned or something is done. And it's because of what I went through 30 years ago in the eighties coming out and the traumas associated with, you know, being verbally and physically attacked for, for being gay. You know, that may not be happening in that moment, but I, but I'm triggering, something's triggering those memories. So we have to talk about these things.
0: So thinking about the organizations we work with, what would a trauma-informed organization look like to you? I'd love to see one. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say, I feel like this is a very aspirational, like, okay, we've got the perfect trauma-informed organization. Um, what, What might it look like? Could we imagine what it might look like? Let's
1: go backwards first and and talk about all of our institutions and organizations. They're all set up under the colonized white supremacist model, at least mainstream ones are. Um, And so, therefore, they, by their very nature and structure, dehumanize, or de, is that the word? Dehumanized? Dehumanize dehumanize (laughs) and re-traumatize. There we go. Or, Or traumatize period. I mean, our schools traumatize kids every day, our prisons, our court system, right? Name a system, the nonprofit industrial complex, the way it treats people and fails to empower and get them to a new place, right? Keeps them, it re-traumatizes all the time. So, so this is really our starting point is that the status quo <laughs> traumatizes its staff and its clients.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, that, I'm going to start with that assertion. So a trauma-informed organization is really, it's going to pay attention to the staff and the clients. It's going to care about the staff and the users of the systems. SAMHSA has six characteristics, and one is that it understands stress and trauma. Okay, if every organization did just that, like just that one thing, I mean, think about what that would be if organizations allowed people wellness days, that there was no stigma attached to taken time off because people are burnout. What if they had calming rooms and um, allowed people to get up off their desks or go into a space and breathe and stretch or listen to music or whatever, so that people could take care of themselves and regulate stress? Right. That would be part of what a trauma-informed organization looks like. Um, the second characteristic is it reduces structural racism and bias. So again, this is the the, the DEI work. You know that most organizations i think are giving lip service to yeah. but um if they're really committed to doing the work then, then that is also part of being trauma-informed strengthens the resilience again of your clients and your staff so it's a very strength-based focus and a resiliency focus promotes safety and stability uncertainty um which we're all experiencing all the time uncertainty is incredibly stress-producing so um, stability and safety is a way of creating that trauma-informed place. Here's another big one, cultivating compassion and trust. Who, do- who does that, <laughs> right? Um, you're in education. What, what is your university doing to show um, compassion towards you and what you've been going through for the past two years and compassion to the students, right? What do they do to build your trust? Imagine that. Um and then the last one is fostering collaboration and agency, which, which is these are just loaded things, but interorganizational collaboration, cross-cultural or cross-organizational collaboration, um, building the agency and efic- efficacy of the staff. And, um, and all of these are then grounded in the, the principles, SAMHSA's principles of safety, trustworthiness and transparency, peer support, collaboration, mutuality, empowerment, voice, and choice, and cultural, historical and gender issues. So I guess you could sum it up. A trauma informed organization is going to find ways to live into the principles of trauma informed care. And it's going to look different in every single organization.
0: I'm I'm wondering if you bring up my university and and, and I'm not mm-hmm. necessarily naming my university here, but organizations are are things, right? That are run by people. Mm-hmm. People for people who probably have traumas, right? And we've, we've established that or more than likely have at least one sor- source of trauma in their life. I can, I don't know. I'm just trying to, I'm trying to figure out how to name this, but like how difficult it must be for all these traumatized individuals to sh- shift gears, particularly in larger institutions, like for example, education, right? Like sure, we are a university and you could think of the university, but the, the the system that the university works in, that we are working within the UW system that works within the department of education that works with the local school districts and all of them play together. Right. And how difficult, not, not obviously something we should avoid, but Mm -hmm. like, wow, how difficult for all these traumatized individuals to be able to work through all of this to change an institution, because it can't just be one person, right? But then when there's thousands of people at a particular institution, I don't know, I'm, maybe I'm getting a little too pessimistic right now, but I don't know. Thoughts?
1: Well, th- this is the work that we're doing, we're trying to do with Hamai Consulting in San Mateo County, California, is through, through first five San Mateo County, create a trauma-informed system that serves children and families which is just about everybody. You know, so we're literally starting a couple of organizations at a time. And th- the big step is, is awareness and education and helping people see um, what is their sphere of influence? What is it that they can do? And you know, so you've got state and federal regulations, county regulations, you have all kinds of things interplaying with, with um, organizations and, and institutions. And one of the exercises we did was um, ask people to draw their web of influence, which centers themselves. So no matter where you are in that organization, you don't have to be president, who cares? No matter where you are, you have influence over people and processes around you. And you can start right there. And you get enough people doing that, that those webs then start to interweave with other webs. And then you start to see some shifts and some change. And I just oversimplified the whole thing.
0: No, that makes <laughs> a lot of sense. I, I think I get it. You have really to start flustered. somewhere.
1: Yeah. 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 There's a million entry points. You eat the elephant one bite at a time. I mean, all those things. Um, but like I took a course with Nora Murphy Johnson this summer on systems change, you know, and, and her goal is to create a more just beautiful and equitable world, right? How are we gonna do that? Really? How and she knows how hard system changes. We know this. Yeah, doesn't mean we don't try to to do it. And a metaphor that one of my mentors said to me like 10 years ago was, Martha, if the Titanic would have shifted its course by one to two degrees, it would have missed that iceberg. And she said that to me because we were talking about systems change, putting restorative justice in schools, right? Another great, big, giant effort. But how important these small degree by degree shifts can be. Or just even
0: changing the life of one person is still going to be worth it. That kind of the story of the, all the washed up, I don't know, crabs or something and somebody picking one up and throwing it back in the ocean, like one up. is it's like, somebody's like, well, you're not going to get all of them. It's like, no, but I'm going to make a difference for this particular one. And then this one and right. this one. Right. right. So, Oh, maybe that's just, a as I'm preparing to get into the university again, um, for the spring semester, my, my mindset right now, but I appreciate that thinking the sphere of influence, um,
1: and the, the little that each of us can do could make a, a world of an impact. All right. I don't know. I, I've been challenging people who have been responding to me today. So take, take this with a grain of it. salt. But a, as a teacher, especially doing evaluation design, um, you know, one of the principles is trustworthiness and transparency. So what if you encouraged your students to give a rationale for those decisions that they would then communicate with their evaluation participants? Right. Because we we get like entrenched in our methodology, but we don't communicate with our participants why we're doing something. And one of the ways that evaluation has done harm is by by doing things that either were outside the scope of that project. Right. Collecting data wide, um, extracting things like this. Um, But what if you said we're going to ask a series of questions about this topic and here's why we're asking that. That's a direct practice evaluators can do to increase trust and transparency with their participants.
0: Well, that's really interesting because so i'm I'm a huge proponent of open science, which at, I think of at its core is about being transparent in how we do the things that we do and sharing the results of what we do, um, you know back to the public, back to other researchers, and so on. And so to me, that's all like, yeah, I teach my students that for sure. Like, of course I do. like, you know, one, you're not going to propose something that you're not going to do anything with, right? So like the biggest one is demographic data. If you're not right. going to do anything with that, don't ask it, right? If And and same with their theses and stuff. And they're like, oh, I just want to know to be able to report who my sample was. I'm like, but do you really need that? If you're not going to do anything else with it, do you really need to ask them those questions? And usually the answer is no, in which case it, it saves time and burden. And um, I've been couching it lately in terms of, response rates are already suffering. Everybody's so stretched so thin with the pandemic. Like if you want them to take your survey, you want it to be meaningful for them and short and, and to the point. And, and yeah, part of that is communicating what you're doing, why you're doing it, what will be done with their results at the, the end of it and how they can find out more information especially if they want the results back. Right. Um, but then linking that, cause I've, I hadn't linked that to the idea of being trauma informed, right? I link that to being responsive to the pandemic that we're in. Uh, for being, quite frankly, just responsible evaluators. I, th- you know, I think uh, back to our our um, standards in evaluation, and um, you know, the f- feasibility, accuracy, propriety, um, and utility that transparency is, an, is a key component of that. But then thinking about how that all integrates into a trauma-informed lens, I really appreciate the connection that I hadn't made prior.
1: Like I always, and, and most of the time I don't have control over it, but I always encourage my clients, please share the results of this survey with the people who took it. Yeah. You know, don't make them come and ask for it. Given the results, right? That promotes trust and transparency that tells them we heard you and here's what we heard, which plays into you know, empowerment, voice, and choice. It's like, we asked you for information. You gave us your voice. Now here's, here's the results, or here's what we did with it. Here's the changes we made.
0: Um, somewhat tangentially, like, uh, this reminds me of like exactly how I do my teaching as well. And I wrote a blog post and I'll link to it, but about how I think the way we teach is not aligned with the way we practice our evaluation work. And This so this idea about transparency, like for me, I'm like, yeah, of course, like that's that's who I am, that's how we do it. Um, that's how I do my evaluation. And therefore, that's how I do my teaching too, right? I tell my students what we're doing, why we're doing it, and not trying to hide from them. And sometimes I'll just be like, um, you know, sometimes there's choices that I don't have control over. And I'll be straightforward. I'm like, I don't really want to do this, but we have to do this for this reason. Um, And we're just going to get through it and we'll be okay. Right. But explaining that to them of like that purpose so that they don't feel like they're in the dark. And then again, just thinking back of like, that's being a trauma informed of like making sure that they are illuminated in terms of like what's happening and why they're doing it rather than this typical notion of education of, you know, the banking model, right. You're just going to sit there and you're just going to open up your mind and the, the, the knowledge will flow in automatically. And that's not the case. And, you
1: know, if you're, if you're in face-to-face or even if in a zoom interview or focus group, and you can start to recognize the signs and symptoms of trauma through body language, facial expressions, if people start checking out or withdrawing or if people start getting aggressive, right? You can then know and understand what's happening and say, let's, let's take a breather. Let's everybody get up and walk around and, and drink some water, you know, cause those are trauma-informed approaches to calmness and safety are the antidotes to trauma reactions. So recognizing that's happening and then taking proactive action so that people, people can settle down again. And, you know, Carolyn Fisher, when we did the AA blog series last January, she wrote about informed consent. And I think one of the least trauma-informed, and I'll stop there, institutions is the IRB, right? So there's certain language that I have visceral reactions to. One is human subject. We need to stop saying that. Um, Evaluant. I hate that term. They're both dehumanizing. We're talking about real people you know, that we're asking something from. And, um, and when Carolyn talks about informed consent, she says, you don't just do it once. And I've started doing what she recommended. And that's when I'm interviewing or focus grouping. It's like, are we okay to keep going? Are you okay? Do you want to take a break or same with transparency? The next group of questions is going to be about this. Are you okay now? Do you want to keep, keep going and continually putting the power in the participant's hands. Yeah. And if they say, no, I'm not, that has to be okay with the evaluator. You can't get all uptight, like, oh my God, I'm not gonna get that data. Mm-hmm. I need to, you know, you can't. The trauma response is if they say, no, I, I really need to stop now, that's okay. Yeah. You know, and a lot of these approaches, I could write about them. I'll have some examples of them in articles. Every time I talk about it, I give more examples. But some of this is when you put those glasses on, you start to see, I should not use that word. You know, you start to see that person just checked out. I need I need to stop right now and check in with that person to make sure they're okay. You know, so you so you get more human yourself. You you get more vulnerable, um, you get more real and authentic, but all of that goes into building trust. I get the sense
0: that this approach probably doesn't align well with the very post-positivistic approach to research and evaluation, um, very quanti numbers driven, like I'm going to do my power analysis and then I'm going to do this. And oh no, if I don't get the sample, like my, my study's bunk type thing. And I also get the sense that oh, a lot of this requires us to slow down. Yeah. For for oh, the example that you provided, like if you're in an interview and you're noticing those responses in people, it's really important that we have, I mean, in one regard buffers in place, right? A time buffer. So I'm not just like, I know I've got 10 minutes left. You know, we got to just keep going. I'm just going to ignore what I'm seeing right now. Um, and be willing and okay. And more than that, like really, really okay with that. I don't know. I don't know the word I'm thinking of right there to, to be able to still slow down or even stop. Right. Because that's what's best for the human as opposed to what's best for the evaluation.
1: Right. I've really been thinking hard about this quant thing and so I'm not going to talk about that, that whole colonized approach, right? But can it be more trauma-informed? And I'm going to say yes. And, it's in, it's, and let's just say it's survey because it's likely to be survey, right? How can you structure that survey in a more trauma, trauma-informed way? And you can build in those breaks. Would you like to continue? You can make it so that they can quit the survey and come back to it, right? So that it's not a one-shot deal. You can continue to ask for consent. As you change sections, let people know what's coming. Right, you eliminate the uncertainty. The next five questions are blah. Would you like to continue? And just put a page in there, like where they have to click. Okay, I'm okay to keep going. I'm okay to keep going. You know, and start to wonder: Is some of our, our non completes, right? Did they get tired because your survey was too long, or did they get triggered? And I've I've quit. I try not to quit surveys because you know we're in this field. I try to. To be a good player in the sandbox. But if those questions trigger me or piss me off, I'm I'm out of there. I'm not going to give that whoever sent me the survey, the pleasure of a complete response. Like, so I'm being passive aggressive because I can't reach them, but I'm sending them a message like what you just asked me there was wrong and I'm done with you. So again, applying that lens, even to those kind of, I don't want to say sterile, but those, those sterile anonymous where there's no human connection with the survey, you can still do some stuff. Yeah, yeah. And
0: I am seeing people, and it's making me a little happy about, uh, like in the open science community, I am seeing people do that of, um, because- when one of the practices of open science is open data of sharing the data publicly so other people can analyze it and so on, you have to be very transparent upfront about, you know, that's, what's going to happen with this data. You have to be very clear about what data will be shared and how, and, you know, and all that stuff to make sure it's anonymous, anonymized and so on. But providing that question again at the end is one of the best practices of saying, okay, as a reminder, now that you've actually completed the survey, right, um, do you still agree to us sharing your data publicly? Of course, anonymized and all that stuff, because it's one thing to consent at the beginning, it's another thing to go through the survey, but it's one more thing for it to actually be out there publicly, um, you know, now that you've actually taken the survey. And so asking that question ongoing, and especially at the end, makes a lot of sense in this,
1: in this lens. And how about allowing people, would you like to receive a a, a copy of the results? Yes. And somehow anonymizing. So the responses aren't, but they put in their email so that it's not attached to the responses. Right. Right.
0: Which is not hard to do, right? We can do that type of stuff.
1: Yeah. Right. We can, we can all be better in these little ways. And, and I really think the more people, the more evaluators learn about this work, they can. Start to, you know, degree by degree, infiltrate, Mm -hmm. (laughs) infiltrate standard processes. Just like the organizations that we work with, we can start to have conversations. You know, you can be, I can be a trauma informed evaluator evaluating a not trauma informed program, right? I can take a trauma informed approach to a program that's not trauma informed, but now there's an opportunity there for a conversation. Which then also leads to that organization is likely not working on becoming trauma-informed itself. So again, your entry point. Um, do what you can and then springboard off of there and start having conversations with people. Ideally, you know, I'd say the, the thing we're shooting for is that a trauma-informed organization delivers trauma-informed programs, which is evaluated in a trauma-informed way by a trauma-informed evaluator. And you can throw in equity and take out trauma-informed and equitable, but you know, um, I'd love for the silos to be broken down between these initiatives. And I start looking at these things holistically, because it's not another thing that you do. You know, when it's a lens, it's the way you see things.
0: And I think that's part of the reason why I bring paradigms into it, because I think it's a paradigm shift, right? Um, That once you've learned about being trauma-informed you're going to find how it permeates all aspects of your work, right? Like, it's going to be really difficult for you to consider and continue doing re-traumatizing practices once you've learned how to recognize that trauma and how to avoid that trauma and how to avoid re-traumatization, like you're going to realize, then there's going to be huge cognitive dissonance, uh, like speaking from, you know, from personal experience of like, why am I doing this? And you're going to realize, well, it doesn't fit in with my new paradigm that I, I, hold of the world. Right. And it's hopefully going to permeate all, all the things that you do, you know, um, work wise, personal wise, et cetera.
1: This, this may come across as shameless self-promotion, but, and maybe it is, but I was asked by a colleague, um, to review some protocols to, and it was on a restorative kind of a restorative justice project. But I had that trauma-informed lens to it. And um, so I said, sure, you know, and sent me the protocols and I, I, I tore them up. <laughs> <laughs> because, um, but, but one of the things the, the study was trying to do was determine if students in a certain program at a university had experienced harm, harm bad enough that they, they quit the program or they knew people who quit the program. All right. Hugely triggering. I mean, when you're asking that question right there, right. It could be sexual harassment. I mean, it's going to be bad stuff. That's going to bring up some stuff. Um, and so I called that to their attention. I'm like, you, you can't, you can't just dive in. Like you, you can't send out a survey. Like, have you ever experienced any of these harms? Because even if they answer the survey and say, yes, how are they feeling afterwards without any way to process or metabolize that? And one of the cool things this university did was then set it up so that at the beginning of the interview, there's a third person there who is a counselor and they introduce the student to the counselor. And so, and and say, when this interview is done, that counselor is gonna be waiting for you if you choose to go in and have a conversation. And I was like, oh my God, that's like the most beautiful thing is to provide the support, you know, still ask the hard questions, but build the support right into that interview. Yeah. As opposed to what we typically
0: see, which is if you're experiencing any, you know, whatever, like
1: here's the number to call. And that's what the protocol was at the beginning. Yeah. You know, it's like, no, you, you can't, you can't extract, you can't ask people to tell them hard, to tell you hard stuff. And then again, put the onus on them to go get the support they need. Yeah. Um, And I was just, it just warmed my heart that through this process of turning this study into into a more trauma-informed study that one of the results was the university, you know, because it cost them money to do that, right? To have those counselors available. I was so, so happy with that. You know, so, I mean, that's a really good example just by shining the light on it and saying, you know, this is sustained this is triggering this is traumatizing what can we do differently and they reacted as an a little awesome shift story. little yeah. shift right yeah. in a little study in a little part but in that little piece of that university there was a little shift a- and you celebrate the heck out of those wins you just- <laughs> yeah. no that's a, that's a that's an incredible win cuz i can
0: imagine how costly that is right and and again think just like just stepping back like how easy it is to not be trauma informed right how easy it would have been to be like i'm just doing my bare minimum as per IRB guidelines, uh, to do this study and not do that because that's going to be really expensive to, to hire somebody to do that type of work or bring somebody in to, to be there for the third interview,
1: you know, the third person in every interview, uh, it's pretty big. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I look at my dissertation study and one of the things I wanted to know was, um, did, did teachers have, I was trying to cover implicit bias in teachers. So did they treat or respond to their students of color differently. Not realizing that there would be teachers of color answering those questions, which were probably incredibly triggering, right? I didn't know. You don't know what you don't know. So what would you do different next time? I can talk about this stuff all day long. <laughs> I
0: know, I know. And I'm just trying to think of like, what question I want to like, what what rabbit hole do I want to go to? And I'm just wondering, are there like other like, really salient examples for you about of uh, uh, examples of trauma informed organizations doing like or organize maybe a better word way of putting it organizations doing something that is really under the lens of a trauma informed approach
1: um yeah i w- i was talking to some folks in georgia and they were working with their courts okay so talk about a totally traumatizing system right i mean ugh, in every way but they had an impact with a few judges who, there's an anteroom, room an anti-chamber where participants and their lawyers wait before they're called in. And they made a few physical changes to that, that room, um, put up welcoming posters and motivational things. And that judge changed the way, and it was a juvenile court, that judge changed the way they talked to people when they came in. And, and are those big things? No, but talk about, you're already triggered. You're standing in that anteroom and and you're freaking out, right? So how to make that space more calming, more reassuring, more positive. And some of the organizations that we worked with in California, changing the physical space is is low-hanging fruit. If you have permission and the ability to, um, you can shift that physical environment pretty easily you know, paint colors, plants, um, what messages are on the walls? I'm thinking of, a our dentist office. <laughs> yeah.
0: Um, ours is the one we're going to now. Um, such a welcoming environment when you walk in, I, I have no problem going to the dentist, but, um, and Kurt, thank you for editing our podcast, but I know my husband, Kurt doesn't, um, like going to the dentist and maybe he can record himself and interject of how like <laughs> I'm so wrong, but I feel like our, our, our office it's so it's beautiful inside, right? They offer you refreshments. Once you walk in super friendly at the desk and you sit down and you're overlooking the Lake Manoamon. So it's just beautiful with these big, big windows. And once you get into the the, the actual chair, then it's also looking out into the beautiful lake yep. in front of you. And so you've yep. just got this relaxed and then they have TVs, So when you're sitting back and getting drilled into, they put headphones on you, heated seats and massaging sheets, and you can look up at the TV, but like what a relaxing environment for, for what a lot of people is a very difficult experience to go through.
1: Right. Right. I mean, you're going to be traumatized at the dentist most in some way, or you're highly likely to. And so all of those are just how to, how to bring that stress level down and create that sense of calm. I had a dentist in Florida who did a similar thing. But, you know, when we look at human services agencies, and I'm going to talk about schools for a second, but you know, Florida schools were, were just the worst, right? So first of all, you're, you're coming into a gate. There's a police or security person at the gate. You. Um, approach the front door with signs all over, says you're under camera surveillance and visitors must report to the main office. And if you sell drugs here, it's a felony, right? All these signs. Then you get buzzed into the office. You walk through something like a Sally port where you're greeted, however. And I did prison ministry. So I know what you have to do to go through a prison, to get into a prison. And that's it. It's the same process. So why are we um, complaining about lack of parent engagement? Right. When if if you were traumatized in school, many of us were in whatever way, right? First of all, why do you want to walk back into that building? A lot of people have high stress and anxiety walking back into a school building, right? And then you walk into it through like a prison atmosphere. Yep. With cops roaming the walls and and then you want. your parents to take the sides of the teachers and the administrators and to, you know, I mean, the whole setup is wrong. And again, that's low hanging fruit. Um, And I noticed that when, when I wrote my book, creating restorative schools, that the schools I worked at in Oakland, everyone thinks, Oh, Oakland, Oakland is wonderful. Um, The schools didn't have all of that. You know, they were welcoming places. There were murals of artwork painted by the kids outside the door. There weren't signs threatening to throw you in jail. You know, that's low hanging fruit. And that's really easy. Yeah. I want to refer people to this, Dana, and you might, you might want to put it on the website. Yeah. Um, CVT.org, Center for Victims of Torture. It's here in Minneapolis. They have a house for where they do their therapy. The entire house is designed trauma informed. It's a two minute video, and you know, like every room has windows. Why? Because most torture victims were in windowless rooms, right? Every, nobody sits with their back to the door. Everybody sits facing the door so they can see an exit. Um, flowers, colors, welcoming furniture. It, it's just it's a model for how to create a safe, caring physical environment where you're going to go in and talk about hard stuff that happened to you.
0: Oh, thank you for sharing that. I will definitely put that in the show notes. I'll look for it and put in the show notes. Thank you.
1: So we've talked,
0: we've actually talked a lot about kind of just, like you said, low hanging fruit of the physical space, but I'm wondering like step above, what would a step
1: above look like? I would say, um, finding ways to care for your employees, really care and allow them time and space for self-care. You know, so Rita Fierro talks a lot about um, the white supremacy in the workforce as turning us into machines, right? We are instruments that are to produce something. And um, opting out of that white supremacist model is recognizing you're not a machine. Well, part of that is then let's humanize that workplace. You know, let's create spaces for people to regulate. Let's build in breathing. Let's bring in a mindfulness um, expert to teach us mindfulness exercises. Let's come into our meetings. And before we start, let's self-regulate, decompress, either breathing or listening or notice the body, settle in. Let's start our meetings by checking in with each other. How are you today? And creating genuine, authentic relationships. And let's not um, book our meetings back to back. So people are frantically running from one to another, give people a break in between
0: let's go to the four day work week. Let's allow for remote options. If people want it, let's not do the Monday through Friday, nine to five, because that
1: doesn't necessarily work for everybody. This organization in California that we work with changed what they called paid time off to wellness days. Hmm. Okay. People didn't get more time. They got a, a change in mindset about what that time was used for. It's not paid time off. It's wellness days. Take them, you know, nobody, should be allowed to accrue 300, 400, right? Nobody should be allowed to do that. People should be encouraged to take their time off for their own mental and spiritual and physical health. And so this this is, I'm gonna call some of this low-hanging fruit, but it's things that you're already doing, but do them differently. Put a new lens on those. And this person shared with me, when they changed paid time off to wellness days, She heard about it from everybody. That's so cool. That's so like people loved it. It was the exact same amount of time off. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You know, but what it was is it was institutionally giving people permission to care for themselves. Now that's huge. That's a big shift.
0: Well, I think we're getting to the end. Are there any other examples or stories or things that you want to share about trauma informed organizations, evaluation, so on? well
1: i don't know if i can say this yet but um we've spoken to the editors of new directions and evaluation and we are putting a proposal together for a special issue on this and it's going to take years for it to come out but um, there's very little literature on that and Tamara and i are working to change that <laughs> and um very very excited about it it's going to be a long process and a lot of work but we um i think we have the green light to actually create a little book.
0: Awesome. I, I hope that. Yeah. everybody
1: builds from, I mean, it's going to be foundational in this field, right. But we all have to start somewhere with that. And then, um, but hopefully it'll be something tangible that everybody they can then build from and, and grow this, um, grow this literature, grow the practice.
0: Well, yeah, I look forward to that. I look forward to the call and seeing it in, in book form someday. Yeah. Someday is the key. Word oh, I know it'll be worth it though. <laughs> as long as, as, as long as that process
1: is, hopefully it'll be a worthwhile experience for you. Yep. 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 And I'll learn a lot too, because the people who submit to it are, are going to be teaching us things. So, yeah. um, it's just, it's going to be a worthwhile endeavor.
0: Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Okay. So one thing I like to do to end the show with is something I love from the NPR code switch podcast. Uh, they ask what song is giving you life right now. And you could answer that too, if you want, but I'm curious what in the evaluation sector field is giving you life right now?
1: Uh, two things our um, our work with first five San Mateo is continuing. We, th- we thought our trauma informed organization work was going to be a one-year thing, but other organizations in the county came forward and said, we want in the sandbox too. And so we are right now planning what the 2.0 version of that is going to look like, and it's going to be bigger and better and more effective. And we're just so excited about it. Um, and it's neat to see, it's just neat to see that the thing took on enough momentum that other organizations came forth with the funding and the interest and said, how can we keep it going? Yeah. So that was wonderful. the other thing is um, we submitted an RFP to do trauma-informed training. Um, we're waiting to hear if we get it, but it, it was Tamara and Johnny Williams and I, and I got to tell you, they'd be nuts not to have us because it was really powerful. And it's just, it's such an honor to have Johnny part of the team um, doing this work. She's got that clinical psycho- psychologist background that, that we don't have. Um, It just adds deeper and deeper layers. And I'm just crossing my fingers on that. I'll cross my fingers for you too. That sounds awesome. Congrats. Congrats on both opportunities. Tamara's got this dream for me. She's like, I would love it if you did nothing but trauma-informed work. I'm like, me too. And so (laughs) she's she's made it her mission to like find that work. I hate marketing. I hate all that stuff, right? I just want to do the work. So she's made it her mission to to manifest this. And um, I actually think it might happen.
0: That sounds like a wonderful uh, partnership the two of you have developed together uh, in, work, in doing this work.
1: Yeah. And, you know, one of the things we asked the organizations just last month like, what action steps can you take to make your organization more inf- trauma informed, like right now? I, I realize I- I'm the trauma inf- re- uh, restorative justice specialist with Hamai Consulting, right? And I haven't taken any steps, but, you know, and Tamara knows a lot about trauma. So there's a lot that is inherently trauma informed and in just how we, do business and how we work. Um, but I said, it, it's kind of my job to onboard new staff, right. So that they understand this thing that we're talking about when we say trauma informed and I haven't done that. And so, you know, I took that actionable step by, um, you know, just led our, our new staff person to the course, um, becoming trauma informed on my website. He's not client facing. He's very much like background processes, right? But I said, just take it so that you, you understand what this thing is that we're talking about. Yeah. You know, so um, we're, we're doing our darndest to live into the work ourselves too and walk
0: the talk. Well, I think it sounds like bringing somebody in like that to do the course still, like they're still working within your organization and perhaps will make a difference in terms of the internal organizational work that you're all working on. You know, not just understanding the work that you're doing, but also could potentially make a difference in whatever they're doing. I don't know, even if it's like website development or something, right? Like they could still bring that approach to their work with some creativity in mind.
1: I, I would say we're really good about caring for each other when somebody's getting burnt out. Um, we, we have learned to recognize each other's triggers, which is, is also really important. Mm-hmm. Um, and step in for each other, and have each other's backs, and that, and that's all just relational stuff. But we've built that so that that we can do this.
0: Always nice to have people
1: like that in in our world, right? <laughs> you know, and honestly, I think I think about these bigger evaluation firms. I'm like, do they have what we have? Like, if somebody's just burnt out, <laughs> can that be okay? Can that be okay? Just to say, I'm I'm kind of worth nothing today. I'm going to pick this back up tomorrow, but I need to rest. Mm -hmm. you know, I
0: have no idea.
1: (laughs) I I can imagine it's organization (laughs) to organization, but yeah. But even, you know, our big evaluation firms, let's, let's, let's start with that.
0: Well, Martha, is there anything else that you want to share with our listeners? Any other things coming up for you? I, we have a ton of things we'll add to the show notes, but anything else?
1: It's January 21st and in 60 days, it'll be spring. Oh, (laughs) hopefully in 60 days. We'll see about that. It will officially be spring, whether it's warmer or not, it, yes. will, it will be spring. Um, and I, and I'm an avid gardener, so I'm always looking forward to spring and working with my green babies.
0: Yep. Yep. I love seeing all the pictures and videos and stuff you put up of all that and, and your art and music stuff that
1: you do as well. So I appreciate that. That's, I mean, I mean, for me, it's like, I'm telling you this lens, right? I know that my gardening work is part of my healing. It's a mm-hmm. trauma informed practice that I do for myself. I probably shouldn't say this, but there are times when I'm on calls and my phone's in my pocket and I'm out pulling weeds. <laughs> it's just, <laughs> Oh, I'm, I'm right there you know? with you. <laughs> the soil is healing. Those microbes get in my skin and, you know, <laughs> and I'm, you know, and I recognize the privilege of, of being able to do that, of working from home and taking meetings in the lovely outdoors, things like that.
0: Well, I hope it warms up soon for both you and, but also myself. Yes. I'm
1: yeah. a little selfish there yep. too. Yeah. As, as we talk just for, uh, listen, just for listeners, do they know I'm in Minnesota and you're in Wisconsin? So it's cold right they now. They know now. Yeah.
0: Today, uh, finally warmed up. We're in the positive digits.
1: <laughs> yeah. I so. see it's 12 now. That's, that's the warmest it's been in a week. <laughs> yeah. But that wind chill,
0: I don't know what it says, but I can imagine with the wind we're having, it's still in the negatives. Yuck. <laughs> Well, Martha, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. I really enjoyed our conversation today and learning from you and hearing about all the different experiences and organizations you've worked with to bring this trauma-informed lens to their work, our work, and so on.
1: And and Dana, I want to say the same to you. I I see your posts and what you're doing with students and how excited and passionate you are about your students. I've never known anybody so excited to get into the classroom, and um, I... I love that you invited me onto your podcast, but I also love what a change maker you are in the world. I appreciate that. Thank you so much. And I'm glad we're connected on Facebook because I get
0: to watch you do your thing too. Yeah, 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 I love being connected to you. Thank you so much, Martha. You bet. Well, thank you. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Please visit the podcast website at evalueland.fireside.fm where you can subscribe to get notified of new episodes and contact us with your questions, comments, or suggestions. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, this has been Land.